0: This is WQA Radio, a podcast from the Water Quality Association, the leading voice of the water treatment industry. Three, two, one. And hello, I'm your host, Wes Bleed.
1: One segment of the industry, which I feel is currently underutilized by public officials who are attempting to solve these problems, is the water treatment dealerships. Many of the challenges encountered by these programs could easily be solved by working with a local water treatment dealer.
0: That's WQA Technical Affairs Director, Eric Yege, talking about his predictions for the water treatment industry in 2022. And welcome to WQA Radio, where we bring you news and insights about the water treatment industry and promote the betterment of water quality around the world. You can find us at our website, wqa.org, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This is episode number 248, and if you're joining us for the first time, well, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we would suggest you hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss a show. That's the magic of podcasting. Also, if you've been listening for a while and wouldn't mind going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review, we would really appreciate it. We're publishing this on January 5th of 2022. Happy New Year from WQA Radio. And in this episode, we'll hear from Eric Yegi as he looks back at his predictions for 2021, what he got right and what he got wrong, And then his top contaminant concerns for 2022. You'll want to listen all the way to the end. It's always one of our most popular podcasts of the year. Later, we'll have our WQA tip. Now on to Eric Yege's New Year's predictions on WQA Radio. And we welcome Eric Yegi to WQA Radio. Eric is the Technical Affairs Director at the Water Quality Association. And uh, we've had him on in the past talking about predictions for the coming year. And we wanted to do that again, looking ahead to 2022. So Eric, welcome to WQA Radio. Thank you, Wes. Hey, let's start by just letting people know a little bit about your role at WQA and what your department does.
1: Sure. So I'm the Technical Affairs Director for WQA. Uh, The Technical Affairs Department develops technical content for WQA. For example, we draft the position papers, which are then ratified through the WQA Board of Governors. We provide members and other WQA departments with technical support. We administer the Water Sciences Committee, which supports the Association on Technical and Scientific Matters. And we also administer the industry research committee, which supports market research for the association, such as the tank and valve report, the RO market trends report, and the business operations report. And I also serve as the scientific consultant for the water quality research foundation. And of course, technical affairs participates in and helps support all of the WQRF research task forces.
0: I'm getting tired just listening to it. so. Um... Uh, You mentioned assisting members, uh, helping members. What exactly uh, does that look like when it comes to technical affairs and WQA members?
1: So if a a member, for example, encounters an emerging contaminant um, or something they're unaware of, they can't find any information on through our professional training department, we can research what is known about that contaminant and how to treat for it. Uh, we also attend and speak at technical conferences to provide advocacy for the industry, and we work very closely with the WQA Government Affairs team on regulatory and legislative issues. So if you have any issues like that, you know, feel free to reach out to the Technical Affairs Department.
0: All right. Hey, and I mentioned at the beginning that uh, we've had you on before, and not just for predictions, obviously, but for other reasons, too. But when it comes to predictions at the beginning of the year, we wanted to reach out to you And and this has been one of the most popular podcasts we've had over the course of uh, the last several years. And that is, what are you seeing as, you know, the most likely water treatment issues, water contaminant issues that our members will be grappling with in the coming year? So as we start this, let's go back to 2021. What did you predict last year and how accurate, if I may ask, were you when it came to predictions?
1: So well, let's start with COVID. Last year, we talked about the impacts of COVID-19 on the industry and that it was likely to continue in 2021. Uh, I think we were dead on on that. We, but we are continuing to monitor that situation and companies that are interested in learning about the impacts uh, that this has had on the industry should plan on attending the Industry Research Committee during our upcoming annual WQA convention. This committee helps us provide oversight of all the market trends reports, uh, which I mentioned before, such as the tank involved report and updates on the impact of COVID-19 are presented during their committee meetings. So uh, this meeting, this, these meetings uh, take place during all of our events and uh, they're open to any attendees at those events. Uh, another topic that we talked about, which wasn't much, uh, wasn't really a prediction as much as it was a heads up, was the EPA's new lead-free rule. And I just want to remind everyone that that deadline of September first, twenty twenty-three, is still out there and still in place. So if you don't have your products uh, certified to ANSI Standard three seventy-two, you will want to uh, You know, kind of start moving on that in 2022. Um, If you don't know how to get that done, you you can reach out to your product certification contact at WQA, or if you don't know who that is, you're welcome to reach out to me, and I can connect you to the right people. But essentially, you have until September 1st, 2023, to get your product certified to ANSI Standard 372 if they contact drinking water. So that would include treatment devices and fittings and plumbing, and stuff like that. We also talked about PFAS last year and um, that it would continue to be an issue, which it has been. And although the PFOA and PFOS have been voluntarily phased out of the US market, the overall PFAS problem is actually getting much more complex. And we talked about lead as well, and that it would continue to be an issue, which it has. Um, We also talked about last year, a study uh, from 2016 done by the American Water Works Association, which estimated that there's approximately 6 to 10 million lead service lines in the U.S. And unfortunately, five years later, we still don't have a better estimate than that. But you may have heard some waves that were being made in Washington, D.C., by Illinois politicians who claimed that there's a new study showing that Illinois has 23% of those total lead service lines in the United States. So how is it possible that Illinois could have 23% of all the lead service lines in America? So if I could, I'd like to take a little bit of a tangent here and just explain that analysis and where those estimates come from and the potential implications of what it might mean for other states. Is that okay? Sure, please do. So one of the current flaws in the lead and copper rule is that the public water systems do not have a good record of the materials that are used in their service lines. The EPA has put a big emphasis on solving this problem with their proposed changes to the lead and copper rule. It would involve enhancements that would require public water systems to develop and report formal inventories of all those materials used in their their service lines. And these inventories would then be used to leverage under the new rule to prioritize uh, the highest risk sampling locations. So developing this type of inventory is going to be a very big lift for public water systems, many of which are already strapped for money and resources. And so policymakers in Illinois sought to get ahead of this curve by developing, they published a rule in 2017 that required these public water systems to begin developing and reporting service line inventories in Illinois. And this new rule eventually led to the publication of these inventories in 2020, last year. And so subsequent analysis of those inventories that were published from Illinois found that 1.4 million service lines in Illinois are known to or may contain lead. And Illinois politicians then took that estimate of 1.4 million, they divided it by the lower estimate of 6 million From the national study, to come up with the estimate of 23% of the lead service lines um, in the U.S. coming from Illinois, so does does Illinois really have almost a quarter of all the lead service lines in the United States? I doubt it. My takeaway from all this is that Illinois is ahead of the curve in beginning to identify the scope of the problem through these inventories, and I suspect that as other states begin to, you know, begin similar efforts they will be just as shocked to learn how many lead service lines are still present in their public water systems. So bottom line is we still don't know how many service lines contain lead, but it's a very large number and it's gonna continue to be a problem.
0: Yeah, it sounds like from what you're saying is that that whole overall assessment uh, may actually be undercounting the number of uh, lead service lines. It certainly isn't covering all of them. It could be.
1: Um, There was an analysis published by the National Resource Defense Council in July of 2020 that seemed to validate that conclusion. The NRDC found that most states do not have this type of information, so they couldn't provide the NRDC with any information. Only a handful of states could report inventory information to the NRDC, and they then combined that new data from those handful of states with the 2016 survey and that resulted in a new estimate which which says that there may be as many as 12.8 million lead service lines in use right now instead of 10 million
0: okay well where did you get it wrong in 2021 eric i know this sometimes it's uh you know not the easiest thing to admit where uh, a prediction was made you know economists certainly don't do it weather forecasters certainly don't do it but uh, we're going to ask you to admit or concede where maybe you weren't as accurate as you would have liked to have been.
1: Sure. So we talked about the internet of things um, last year, and we talked about um, that there were advances occurring and likely to continue relative to the internet of things or internet connectivity of water treatment devices. And the industry does continue to make impressive advances in this area. In fact, we recently had a researcher that addressed the industry through The WQA Water Sciences Committee requesting collaboration in leveraging some of these advances to support future research efforts on peak flow demands and other plumbing issues. But I honestly don't know whether or not these advances in IoT have gained traction with consumers. This is not a metric that we currently track through our market trends reports. And perhaps it's something we can find a way to add to our market trends tracking down the road. Uh, maybe if, if companies are interested in new initiatives like that, they would be prioritized through the WQA Industry Research Committee. So if members are interested, they can get involved in the governance of the association through that
0: committee. Okay, so the Internet of Things isn't necessarily the kind of thing that consumers are chomping at the bit to uh, to necessarily purchase. What else?
1: Well, it could be. We don't really know whether it is or not. Um, Wildfires is another thing where we we definitely learned some new things uh, uh, relative to wildfires. We had previously known that wildfires can cause some adverse impacts on water quality, and we do include training about that in our professional certification and training programs. But I don't think anybody anticipated the extremely high concentrations of organic solvents that can be released from plastic pipe and fittings during these events. After some of the wildfires in California, they were finding benzene levels that exceeded 2,000 parts per billion. And to put that in perspective, California's limit for benzene and drinking water is one parts per billion. The federal limit is five. So these are very, very high numbers that nobody anticipated.
0: Well, if that's all you got wrong, I'm not going to uh, suggest here that we give you a uh, failing grade by any stretch. So, uh, so let's look ahead. Uh, let's let's look ahead to 2022. And here we go. Uh, top predictions. Uh, tell us what you are predicting and why.
1: So, if we have the time, I, there's five contaminants that I would like to highlight for members. Um, and explain why they should be paying attention to them. Those being lead, copper, manganese, disinfection byproducts, and PFAS.
0: Okay, so let's start off with lead.
1: So with lead, what we saw in response to Flint and other lead release events was a push to get more public water supplies adding phosphates as a corrosion control inhibitor. And while this is still considered to be one of the most effective corrosion control techniques, New studies are showing that it is not effective in all cases. In fact, under certain conditions, it can actually make the lead corrosion problems worse. The most effective way to protect people from lead in drinking water is still a final barrier treatment solution at the point of use. This not only protects, uh, provides protection from any lead release from the service line, it also provides protection from lead release from the plumbing within the house or the building. However, this push towards increased use of phosphates has other implications that industry members should be aware of. The presence of phosphates can increase the amount of very fine lead particulates which are formed. And these fine lead particulates tend to be much more difficult to remove through conventional water treatment. So there's currently a task force working to revise the product certification requirements for lead. To provide a more rigorous challenge of these very fine lead particulates and companies who are interested in providing final barrier solutions for lead should be aware of this effort and may want to begin their own research and development testing to understand how their products will perform with fine lead particulates
0: good all right so lead uh, number one how about number two copper
1: so copper is worth mentioning as a contaminant that's getting increased attention along with lead. Jordan Carey from, our, from WQA's Government Affairs Group and I were both invited to participate in a public discussion that the EPA hosted regarding proposed revisions to the lead and copper rule. And many of the stakeholders involved in those discussions were pushing the EPA to implement a separate sampling protocol for copper. This is because the current rule is designed to focus sampling efforts on locations, which are higher risk for lead release. And while the water is also simultaneously tested for copper, the highest risk sites for copper might never be sampled. So many cities have identified concerns relating to lead and are shifting towards a strategy to provide a final barrier protection for citizens. For example, while they are replacing your lead service lines. They might do a lead filter handout program. And companies who are involved in facilitating these lead filter handout programs may have noticed that officials are now asking for filters that carry both a certified lead claim, a certified class one particulate claim, and a certified copper claim. Um, New research is finding that water conditions which cause the release of copper into the drinking water may not be as well understood and predictable as we previously thought. So, copper is definitely an important contaminant to track moving forward, and companies who can provide effective treatment solutions for copper might benefit from increased attention to this contaminant.
0: All right. We're talking about predictions for 2022, with lead and copper being two of the concerns. And We have manganese as number three what can you tell us about that
1: like lead and copper manganese is well suited for final barrier solutions merely trace levels of manganese or even non-detect levels leaving the drinking water treatment plant can result in major manganese releases over time this is because manganese is an element that tends to accumulate inside the pipes that bring drinking water to your home over the years even these trace levels of manganese can result in massive loads of manganese being deposited inside these pipes. And then a small change in water chemistry can lead to very large releases that can continue for months or even years. Mm -hmm. And while manganese has traditionally been thought of mostly as an aesthetic issue, new science shows that it has very dangerous health impacts which in some ways are very similar to lead. Children are particularly at risk because they may develop memory, attention, motor skills, learning, and behavioral problems. So like lead and copper, because manganese is coming from the pipes after the water leaves the drinking water treatment plant, a final barrier solution is really the best way to protect kids against this contaminant in the drinking water.
0: Very good. Lead, copper, manganese, the top three. And now let's move on to disinfection byproducts, as number four.
1: Disinfection byproducts, including trihalomethanes, haloacetic acids, are also an issue that members should be paying attention to moving forward. These chemicals are formed after the water leaves the drinking water treatment plant. The disinfectants, which are added to the water to prevent microbial growth, react with natural occurring organic organic matter that is present in all water sources to form these chemicals. And these chemicals are carcinogens, and they can have adverse impacts during pregnancies. As we already discussed, more systems are now adding phosphates as a corrosion control strategy to protect people from lead. And phosphates are an essential nutrient. Therefore, these systems must now also add disinfectants along with the phosphates in order to prevent microbial growth. Hence, you have the formation of disinfection byproducts. Another factor that's driving this issue is the push to implement long pipe solutions in order to consolidate small systems into larger systems. The water in these consolidated systems remains in the pipes longer before reaching the faucet. And this additional residence time allows more time for these disinfection byproducts to form, generally resulting in higher concentrations. So these factors are gonna continue to drive concerns about disinfection byproducts. And because these chemicals are forming after the water leaves the drinking water treatment plant, this problem is again uniquely suited for point of use and point of entry solutions.
0: All right, Eric, and then we come to PFAS or PFAS. What can you tell us about that? Well, there's a lot that we
1: still don't know about PFAS and a lot of new things that we have learned. But rather than going to depth on PFAS, because we could talk for a long time on that topic. Why don't we just say PFAS is going to be with us next year and beyond. It's going to be a problem that we're all going to have to deal with for a long time. And maybe you and I can do a separate podcast to have a more in-depth discussion about PFAS and why it's going to be an
0: issue. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. That's a great tease for an upcoming program. So listener, be on the lookout for another podcast with uh, Eric and me talking about PFAS and what you need to know. Okay, fantastic. So we're talking with Eric Yagi, the WQA's technical affairs director about predictions for 2022. And those were the five main predictions you have, but let's move away from specific contaminants. Eric, if we could maybe talk about some of the other factors which are likely to impact the industry in 2022 and beyond. So let's
1: start with chloride, Wes. Chloride discharge from water treatment applications will continue to be a rising concern. There are many different research groups tracking chloride trends across the US. This is no longer a problem that we only see coming up in the Southwest or in California. Environmental concerns about impacts on aquatic life are only one driving factor here. In recent years, there's been an increased focus on looking at the impacts that chloride has on our infrastructure, and uh, specifically chloride accelerates corrosion. As the chloride levels rise in our streams and rivers, this accelerates the deterioration of bridges and piers. Many of those streams and rivers also serve as source waters for drinking water utilities. And this makes the drinking water more corrosive, causing degradation of the pipes that bring drinking water to your faucet. And this in turn increases the risk that lead and other me- metallic contaminants will end up in the drinking water impacting public health. So, innovative solutions that can reduce the amount of chloride discharged from water treatment applications or even recapture it will be in
0: high demand in the future. Very good, very good. What else?
1: There's been a heightened level of interest in point of use and point of entry solutions from regulatory officials and policymakers across the country. Some of this is being driven by new programs such as the California Safer Water Program, which provide funding for small systems and economically challenged areas that are impacted by water quality issues. Another driving factor has been media attention on lead release events. Um, and third, a third driving factor has been emerging contaminants such as PFAS and one, two, three trichloropropane. Each of these create different opportunities for point of use and point of entry industry. For example, companies who are interested in addressing emerging contaminants should be paying attention to drinking water technical conferences, such as WQA's annual convention and exposition. Other conferences where emerging contaminants are discussed include AWWA's Water Quality Technology Conference and the EPA's Small Systems Workshop, which is actually free. Companies who are interested in collaborating with public officials that are attempting to address lead uh, will want to have their claim certified by an accredited third-party certification body, such as WQA. And in addition to a certified lead claim, these officials are looking for products to carry a certified copper claim and a certified class one particulate claim. The officials in charge of these programs tend to prefer products which have a performance indicating device that tells the user when the device requires maintenance. And also, as we discussed, it would be a good idea for these companies to get involved with the Lead Challenge Task Force and begin their own R&D testing to determine what impact phosphates and very fine lead particulates might have on the performance of their products. And lastly, companies who wish to get involved with programs that aim to help economically challenged communities or small systems that have historical drinking water compliance issues will probably need to provide solutions for contaminants that we've all known about for a very long time, but which don't necessarily make it into the news anymore. These systems tend to struggle with things like arsenic, nitrate, radium, and other regulated drinking water contaminants. Um, One segment of the industry which I feel is currently underutilized by public officials who are attempting to solve these problems is the water treatment dealerships. Many of the challenges encountered by these programs could easily be solved by working with a local water treatment dealer. For example, these small systems may not have the expertise to properly configure, install, and and maintain these point of use and point of entry treatment solutions. Local water treatment dealers could easily provide these services. I believe that as officials catch on to this potential resource, they will be looking for dealers that focus on good business ethics and certified professionals. Manufacturers that provide Internet connectivity to their treatment systems will also want to keep an eye on this space. Internet connectivity is a great way to address the concerns that public officials have about monitoring the performance and the maintenance of all these systems once they are installed out in the field.
0: All right, and what else in terms of uh, general concerns? Natural
1: disasters is one area we should probably talk about. Droughts cause water shortages. They also concentrate the levels of TDS and salinity. This can lead to local restrictions or implementation of green plumbing codes to drive water conservation and reduce salt discharge. Contaminants can also be concentrated, making it necessary to provide drinking water treatment on source waters where it was previously not necessary. And droughts can also accelerate the risk of wildfires, which we already talked about. Um, And as we saw in 2021, extremely dangerous levels of organic solvents, such as benzene, can get into the drinking water during wildfires. So companies who are assisting customers after a wildfire should be very cautious to consider the levels of contamination. In some cases, these chemicals can reach truly extreme levels after a wildfire even to the point where treatment would not be effective and could be a liability for you. Bottled water deliveries might be necessary in these cases until the concentrations of these contaminants can be brought down to treatable level. Um, And after flooding is another example of a natural disaster where bottled water deliveries may be necessary. For example, when a homeowner's private well is flooded, it's not safe to use the well and in extreme cases, even municipal drinking water treatment plants and infrastructure can become flooded or damaged by flooding, causing temporary water outages. And there's a long history of WQA members stepping up to help people during these types of disasters. And unfortunately, events like this will always be with us.
0: And I know you mentioned that uh, you had talked about COVID as a prediction for 2021, is that still going to be part of uh, the conversation in 2022.
1: Yes, there is so much uncertainty right now because of the COVID variants that no one really knows whether we are headed in a positive direction or back towards lockdowns. I think it would be wise to assume that at least in 2022, the challenges related to labor and supply chains will continue. And as we discussed, WQA is actively tracking the impacts of COVID. um, And Members who are interested in that information should plan on attending the industry research committee meetings at our upcoming WQA convention, and also later in the year at our mid-year leadership conference. These meetings are open to all attendees at those events.
0: Eric, I think you've uh, pretty well summed it up, and I appreciate your... Uh, predictions and thoughts about 2022. Thanks so much. As I mentioned earlier, it's often one of our most popular podcasts of the year. So great to have you on the program. Great to have these predictions. And in general, uh, let me just say that you mentioned convention, and that's coming up April 6th through the 8th in Orlando. And we would love to have you there. love to see you. And then this is where you can take advantage of the great education sessions that are going to be touching on uh, probably many of these issues that's it's still being uh, put together. But uh, the education is uh, second to none. And of course the trade show floor open for uh, April uh, 7th and 8th uh, is going to be stunning as well. We've got lots of exhibitors already lined up to go. So uh, just wanted to throw that in and again, throw in the fact that Eric and his team stand by to assist members of WQA. And another great reason to be a WQA member is to to be able to contact Eric and Brianna and uh, others at WQA. So, Eric, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, I shouldn't say people. I should say members get a hold of you if they have a question. Sure. You can
1: email me at eeggy, Y-E-G-G-Y, at WQA.org.
0: I'm happy to help. All right. Thanks again, Eric. Appreciate it. Thanks, Wes. Now our WQA tip. Great news. Registration has opened for the 2022 WQA Convention and Exposition. This is the signature event of the year in the water treatment industry. Nothing else like it. You'll want to join us in Orlando, Florida, April 6th through the 8th for education, networking, industry updates the wqa leadership awards and of course a trade show with the latest technology and products go to wqa.org convention to learn more and get you and your entire team signed up save with advanced pricing through january 26th wqa.org convention and we will see you in orlando Thanks for listening to WQA Radio, a podcast of the Water Quality Association, the leading voice of the water treatment industry. Remember, you can subscribe to WQA Radio on most popular podcast apps. Learn more about water at WQA.org and, of course, learn about WQA product certification, professional certification, and how you can become a member at WQA.org. This is Wes Bleed. So long from WQA Radio.